Our text this morning is the book of Hebrews chapter 11, uh, verses 1 through 6, reproduced in your bulletin, or you can look there in your copy of the scriptures. And this would probably be as good a time as any uh, to say that we are going to be looking at uh, Abel and Enoch. And in order to do so, we will need to access Genesis chapters 4 and 5. So you need to put a finger there now or grab a Bible somewhere nearby uh, because it will be helpful for you to have those texts in front of you as we look at the lives of Abel and Enoch. Again, these are the words of the one only true and living God, inspired, inerrant, and our only rule for faith, what we should believe, and life, how we should live. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. In preparation this week, I uh, consulted commentaries, uh, Bible scholars, uh, theologians, and uh, I also consulted a a professor of history, archaeology, and antiquities. That, of course, would be Professor Indiana Jones. Uh, (laughs) Having seen the Dial of Destiny this uh, past week. And at one point in the movie, as uh, Indy is uh, facing yet another uh, need for miraculous escape from some catastrophe or ever, he uttered these words. He said, you know, I have found it's not so much what you believe, it's how hard you believe it. If I could come up with one sentence that was the polar opposite of everything the Bible teaches, that would be it. (laughs) The Bible teaches that it is crucial, vital, essential, eternally important what you believe. And then how hard you believe it almost determines nothing. Let me give you an example. Suppose you're in an airplane, maybe you're at 25 or 30,000 feet, and uh, the pilot comes on and says, I have some bad news for you, we're going down. But I have some good news. 
Parachutes have been provided for each and every passenger on the plane. And so if you put on your parachute and use it properly, you will land safely on the ground even as the plane crashes and burns. Everyone does so dutifully. And as you're standing in line to make the jump, you notice the guy in front of you has strapped to his back, instead of a parachute, an anvil. And you tap him on the shoulder like, dude, did you know you've got an anvil strapped to your back and not a parachute? Oh, yeah, I know. I know. Well, you know that won't work. And he says, you don't understand, my friend. It's not what you believe that's important. It's how hard you believe it. And I have the greatest faith that this anvil will save me and allow me to land safely on the ground. And there is nothing in the whole universe that can shake my unshakable faith in this anvil. And so I have faith. And he makes the jump. Splat. <laughs> All the faith in the universe is not going to save that guy. And you're next. And you're terrified. You're scared to death. You're holding on literally for dear life to the parachute. Your faith is weak. <laughs> You're like, I hope this works. It's all I've got. It's my only hope of survival. And you make the jump. You pull this cord. The parachute unfurls. And you float safely to the ground. Your weak faith in the proper object saved you. Great faith in the wrong object will be of no avail whatsoever. And there are those who have all kinds of great faith not in Christ. And that faith will avail nothing on the day of judgment. They will be plunged to a death worse than the death of that guy with the anvil strapped to his back. But the weakest believing Christian whose only hope for survival in time and eternity is Jesus Christ will find that faith sufficient for salvation. It matters greatly what you believe or in whom your trust is because faith's value is determined not in the strength of faith but in the object of faith. And we said this last Lord's Day, I'll just repeat it ever so briefly this morning for the sake of context. When the Bible says without faith, it is impossible to please God. The whole Bible, and especially the book of Hebrews, tells us that what the author means by that is without faith in Christ, it is impossible to please God. Faith isn't held up as an independent, isolated virtue, regardless of where that faith or trust is. No, God is pleased in those who are pleased in his son. The same one that God is pleased in. And then I said the book of Hebrews, the author here in chapter 11, he really gives sort of an explanation of faith and then examples of faith. 
or a definition of faith, what it means uh, to have faith, and then demonstrations of faith. What does it look like to live by faith? And so last Lord's Day, we looked uh, in some detail at the explanation of faith or the definition of faith. Today, we will begin several weeks following the uh, author in chapter 11 of examples of faith. And the first example is Abel. Hebrews 11.4, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Let's fill in a little more detail then concerning Abel. It's found in Genesis chapter 4, and I'm going to begin in verse 2. Genesis 4.2. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their flat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering... He had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. What we have here are two brothers. They're raised by the same parents. They're taught in the same household. Presumably, they're both taught the same things. And there's no evidence that Abel had some kind of insider information over Cain or or some kind of special revelation or word from the Lord that Cain didn't have access to. Both go to church. Both offer a sacrifice of worship. And yet, the Bible says that God had regard for one and not the other. Or with one, God is pleased, and with the other, he is not pleased. And so what's going on here? Well, there are uh, two things going on. There might even be three things going on. There's really like a lot of things going on. Uh, But we don't look at all of them necessarily. We'll we'll look at, at two or three things. And the first one is this. It is not only Cain's sacrifice that is deficient. It's not only his worship or his offering that is deficient. Genesis 5, verse 4. The Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. Very simply, what you have described here is a good man with a good heart offering a good sacrifice and a bad man with a bad heart offering a bad sacrifice. 
The problem is not only with Cain's sacrifice. It may have been deficient. It actually might not have been. But it's not just his sacrifice that's the problem. The problem is with Cain. There's something wrong with him. Specifically, there's something wrong with his life and his heart, which impacts God's view of his worship. And so we learn that worship is first a matter of the heart, and then, secondarily, a matter of sacrifice. Now, nicely for us, the Apostle John, in his first letter, gives us a little more commentary to enhance our understanding of all of this. 1 John 3.12, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. The Apostle John says it wasn't just Cain's sacrifice that was, quote, evil. It was Cain's deeds. He himself was not living in accordance with the will and the way of the Lord. Apparently, Abel was. They both had access to the same revelation of God. Abel trusted God, believed God, and obeyed God in all of his instructions. Cain acknowledged God, but didn't believe him or trust him, and consequently didn't follow his instructions. He didn't live according to God's will and God's way. Now, externally, if you were a neighbor, there wouldn't be too many neighbors back then, but it could have been a, a, a relative, looking at this, externally, Cain might have looked fine. He might have looked, you know, okay. We don't read of any particular consequences befalling Cain before this. He may have looked you know, happy on the outside, even if he was miserable on, on the inside. And everything is going along pretty well for him until, in this instance, God confronts him. And in so many words, says to Cain, what you are doing is wrong. What your brother is doing is right. What you are doing is wrong. How does Cain receive this word of confrontation from the Lord. He gets angry and depressed. That's how he responds. Anger and depression. Cain was willing to be religious. He just didn't want to be a believer. He was willing to believe in God. He wasn't interested in following God. And so Abel, in obedience offered a sacrifice that comes from believing faith. Cain offers a sacrifice that apparently there was no regard for God's will or God's way. But even at this point, even at this point, God shows himself right from the beginning to be a God of grace, to Cain, a God of mercy, to Cain, 
A God who gives sinners opportunity after opportunity after opportunity when they do the wrong thing after the wrong thing after the wrong thing to repent and do the right thing and receive the mercy and forgiveness of God. Verse 7, God says to Cain, if you do well, so far, bud, you've blown it. You've done poorly. But if you do well, will you not be accepted? I've accepted Abel and his faith and his sacrifice. Not because he's unique or special or different, but because he believes in me, loves me, and follows me. If you do that, I'll treat you the same way. I'll love you, provide for you, protect you, and forgive you. He invites Cain to acknowledge, confess, and repent of his sinning, probably both in his life and and in his worship. Because God is willing to accept anybody, anywhere, anytime, who acknowledges, confesses, repents of his sin, and puts their faith and trust and hope in him. It is still one of my very favorite Bible verses because I probably need it the most of any Bible verse there is. It's John 6.37. It is our Lord Jesus who says, Whoever comes to me, I will never turn away. I didn't just need that at the age of 23 to be translated from being a non-Christian to a Christian. Oh, I needed it then. I needed to know he wouldn't turn me away. But I still need it. <laughs> you know, how, how, how does that saying go? Christians aren't sinless. Aren't sinless. They just sin less. You know, it's not like we don't sin at all. Amen? <laughs> and I need to know every time if I come to Jesus... Have I sinned away the day of grace? He's like, dude, you know, this is the 10,000th time you've come to me with your sins. I can't take it anymore. We have grossly underestimated the love of Christ and the grace of God, who says, whoever comes to me, I will never turn away. And he says that to Cain right there. Of course, Cain hardens his heart and refuses the invitation of God. Abel is commended, the scripture says, as a man of faith. And Abel is the example. That's what we're doing. We're starting this somewhat lengthy series on examples of faith. He is an example of what it means to worship by faith. Faith in God, trust in his word and the sacrifice with which God is pleased. And then the writer of Hebrews moves us on to Enoch. And for Enoch, we need to go to Genesis chapter 5. Genesis chapter 5 begins, this is the book of the generations of Adam. Oh, let's read through these 23 genealogies. No, let's not do that. Uh, He begins with Seth and Enosh and Kenan, and I'm going to skip down to verse 11 of Genesis 5, which probably is still more than we need, but I'm doing it anyway. 
when Kenan had lived 70 years, he fathered uh, Mahalalel and had other sons and daughters, and all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. And when Mahalalel had lived 65 years, he fathered Jared and had other sons and daughters, and all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, and he died. And when Jared had lived 162 years, yay, we got there, he fathered Enoch and had other sons and daughters, and thus all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years. He walked with God and had other sons and daughters, and all the days of Enoch were 365 years, and Enoch walked with God, and he was not. Because God took him. And, and so you have, you know, something of this repetitiously redundant, boring to some of us, kind of me, over and over again. So and so, you know, uh, Kenan lived, and he had sons and daughters, and then he died, and Mahalalel lived, and he had sons and daughters. Jared lived, and uh, he had sons and daughters, and then Enoch lived, and then he had a baby. He had a child. And these verses certainly seem to indicate that with the birth of this child, with the birth of his firstborn, something changes in Enoch. And it says, after the birth of Methuselah, he walked with God for 300 years. Did he walk with God before that? Maybe, I don't know. But specifically, it says, after the birth of the baby, Enoch walked with God, and he lived, and he never died. What happened? What happened? What event caused Enoch uh, to have this great spiritual revival that changed his way of life so that he walked with God? Well, the event for Enoch was the birth of of his baby. It was a life-changing event for him. It got his attention, and it got his attention so much that from that moment on, he had a close walk and fellowship with God. What's the point, Pastor Dave? Thank you for asking that. <laughs> there are events and circumstances in our lives that are unique in grabbing our attention and often igniting in us spiritual fervor or spiritual dependence or, or renewed spiritual interest. My friends, there's something about the sinful heart that throws water on that at an astonishingly fast rate. And my plea with you is if you have something like that, pour gasoline on that fire of the Holy Spirit to keep that fire burning. That's what Enoch did. The baby was that, which was a seismic event in his life, and he was never the same after that. And he walked with God after that for 300 years. He never stopped. He kept fueling the fire of that sudden revivalistic relationship with God. For some of you, it will be the birth of a baby that really grabs you and grips you and gets your attention. But whatever it is, a promotion, an unexpected success, some tragedy or trauma, don't let it pass you by unchanged. 
leverage that thing, hang on to that thing. If, if it gets your interest in such a way that it draws you closer to God, hang on to that with both hands and never let it go. You know, you know in, thinking, in thinking about that, my mind was drawn to 9-11, which now more and more is before the time of more and more people. That's a depressing thought. But anyway, because <laughs> for many of us, it is exceedingly vivid, the attack on the Twin Towers uh, in September of 2001. And uh, for those who lived uh, through that, you may recall that in the days following the 9-11 attack on our country, there was a spike in church attendance and a spike in spiritual interest. And what appeared to those at that time, you know, this great awakening and revival brought on by this horrific catastrophe. How long did that last? The best assessment is it lasted about eight weeks. About eight weeks. And if you look at the pre-9-11 church attendance records and the eight-week post-9-11 church attendance records, they're about the same. That's how fast spiritual fervor can die. I came across this article in Christianity Today. I want a little bit, of, just a little bit short excerpt uh, from it. This was on the 20th anniversary uh, of 9-11, so just a couple of years ago. It said, the 9-11 attacks didn't put American Christians on a trajectory toward more orthodox beliefs or more consistent habits of prayer, church attendance, or scripture reading. In so far as we can measure matters of faith, the decline of American religiosity continued unbroken. Spiritually speaking, it's as if nothing significant happened at all. Unbelievable. It wasn't the case for Enoch. The birth of this baby got his attention, and it never left his sight. Enoch walked with God, which, by the way, is something we can do as well. Is not God Emmanuel, God far away. <laughs> Emmanuel, God with us. What, the, what does it mean to walk with God? It means we are consciously aware of God's presence with us in everything. In everything. In our recreation. In the workplace. On the computer when there's no other human being in the room. Do we walk with God throughout the day? Do we converse with him in the mundane and the ordinary? Is my heart open to him? Is my life open to him? Are my values and opinions open to him? God is with us in everything and in every place. I, I wasn't going to use this, but I am going to use it because it's a quote from one of my heroes and mentors, the late Dr. Francis Schaeffer. In one of his sermons, Dr. Schaefer said, we say that we believe in the Holy Spirit, and then we live as if there were no Holy Spirit. Guilty. Guilty as charged. But God is with us when we are wronged. 
when we're hurt, to share our sorrows, to share our pain and heartache, to share our joys, to share our accomplishments, to share our satisfactions. He is not a God who is far away. He is a God who is with us. And of course, as Orthodox Bible-believing Christians, we know he is even the God who is in us, hence with us at all times and in all places. I think it should be noted that it doesn't say that God walked with Enoch, which he did. But it says Enoch walked with God, which to me indicates that Enoch had to put forth some effort. He had to take the initiative. It, it required intentionality, in other words. He had to exercise a conscious awareness of God's presence. And that, uh, besides convicting me, uh, of my failure to do so regularly. Remind me, a little book uh, commended to me by the pastor in the church where I got saved uh, that I brought, uh, The Practice of the Presence of God by Brother Lawrence. Uh, and again, let me just share, uh, this was a, a monk whose primary duties were in the kitchen, serving, cooking, and cleaning. That's what he did for most of his life. And yet, this was his prayer. Lord of all pots and pans and things, make me a saint by getting meals and washing up the plates. And then he said this, the time of business does not differ with me from the time of prayer. And in the noise and clatter of my kitchen, while several persons are at the same time calling for different things, I possess God in as great a tranquility as if I were on my knees at the blessed sacrament. And so later on, Brother Lawrence says, this doesn't come naturally or automatically, practicing the presence of God. It's a habit that has to be developed. <clears throat> so we should establish ourselves in a sense of God's presence by continually conversing with him. And then he says this, in order to form a habit, this is the last one, in order to form a habit of conversing with God continually and referring all that we do to him, we must first apply to him with some diligence. But after a little while, we should find his love inwardly excite us to it without any difficulty. Well, yeah, that's Brother Lawrence. He was in a monastery. How hard could it be <laughs> to walk with God and practice the presence of God? Or, you know, even Enoch, you know, in, in this fairly recently created, pristine world, you know, how hard could it be for, for Enoch to walk with God in the world in which he lived? Let me share with you the context into which Enoch was born. If I can find it. It was there a minute ago. But uh, oh, I gotta find it because it's too good to pass up. There it is. Enoch bore Methuselah. That was his son. Methuselah bore Lamech. It was Enoch's grandson. Lamech bore Noah. Noah is Enoch's great-grandson. That's not too far removed 
from Enoch. What kind of a world did Noah live in? Genesis 6. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved his heart. Do you really think everything was hunky-dory and it was like living in the 1950s, you know, when, and then just right up until the day of Noah, and then Noah's born and just the whole thing crashes and burns? I think not. (laughs) Apparently the earth had been wicked and a hard place to live for a long time. And that's the world that, uh, that Enoch lived in. He lived in a dirty, corrupt, fallen world. And in that context, he still was able to walk with God. And it says for Enoch, there essentially was no difference between life and death. Do you think about that? One day he's walking with God by faith, And then in a moment, he's walking with God by sight. But for him, it's not a dramatic change of experience. It's just a change of address. (laughs) In fact, I heard one preacher put it this way once. I really liked it. He said, one day as, as Enoch and God are walking along, God says to Enoch, you know, we're closer to my house than we are to your house. Let's just go there. (laughs) And so God took him to be to be with him. God knew that Enoch was not afraid of death because he had already died to the world and he had already died to the things of the world, the things that might scare us about death, regret, uh, anxiety, uh, fear of meeting God. Enoch didn't have any of those things. He was transparent before the Lord and he knew the Lord already knew everything uh, that there was uh, to know uh, about him. And so Enoch's walking along one day, and he walks with the Lord right in to the Lord's house. With Abel, we have an example of worshiping by faith. With Enoch, we have an example of walking by faith. And so what's the outcome of these two examples? And I'm going to probably say more about this next week, but, you know, example means these are things we can follow. I already have next week's sermon almost done, so I'm dying to preach it right now, but I'm not going to do that. Hold back, hold back. You know, but they're, they're, they're examples. And so Abel pleased God, and he was murdered. Enoch pleased God, and he was blessed and never died. Here's what that means for us. The dispensations of providence, how things turn out, is God's business. Living to please God is our business. And if it is, it won't matter how it turns out because we have the reward in times of joy and in times of difficulty. God is the reward. He is the reward for those who seek him. Like Abel, we will have times possibly when we live by faith and people will hate you for it. Go ahead. Just tell some 
well-meaning non-Christian, what you're doing is wrong. See how that gets received. Sometimes well, more often than not, poorly. Abel lived to please God, and he was hated for it. Some, like Enoch, when we live to please God, people will be drawn to it. You will be admired. You will be respected. But you cannot control how people respond to you and the gospel. You can only control how you live before the Lord in a way that pleases him. Jesus is called the second Adam, but I believe he's also the second Abel. Jesus lived a life entirely to please his heavenly Father, and he says so again and again and again. Everything I do is to please my Father. The words I speak are my Father's words. The works I do are my Father's works. He's like, that's my whole goal in life, is to follow the will and ways of my heavenly Father. Jesus lived a life of sinless perfection, and he was murdered for it. They killed him, and he never did anything wrong. And so the writer of Hebrews says about Abel, though he died, he still speaks. The blood of Abel speaks to us of an example of saving faith. The blood of Jesus speaks to us of the ground of our saving faith. It was the death of Jesus, suffering the wrath of God that we deserved for the sins we had committed that that speaks to us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're delighted to be in the school of faith, to understand what it means to trust you unwaveringly, for which we need grace and help and strength, and then to have examples to help us see better and understand more easily what living by faith looks like. Help us to glorify you through our faith. We ask in Jesus' name.